From Luminary and Built It Productions, it's wisdom from the top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, life lessons from a polar explorer. You don't need to get up in the morning. You don't need to get yourself an education. You hardly need to do anything in life, and you certainly don't need to go to the South Pole. But it's great doing it. It gives life meaning. Arling Kaga and the wisdom of extreme places. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Arling Kaga is a Norwegian publisher, writer, and explorer. He first sailed across the Atlantic when he was just 19. And he went on to make record-breaking expeditions to the North Pole, the South Pole, and Mount Everest. In his books, including Silence in the Age of Noise, and most recently, The Philosophy of an Explorer, Arling shares some of the wisdom he's gained in those extreme settings. But before he set off to see the world, the world came to see him. His father was a jazz critic, and when Arling was a boy, growing up in Oslo in the 1970s, musicians touring through town would also end up at his house. My father invited all jazz artists uh, visiting Oslo back to our home after the concerts. And that was a great experience because, you know, then you can hang out with these people. Of course, they always got a bit drunk, uh, Norwegian style. But, you know, it was uh, it was kind of opened my horizon to the world yeah. uh, to get to meet this, like, you know, sit and, you know, to chat with Chet Baker. It was, you know, wow. just a great experience. You, mm. Chet Baker was in your house? Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, it's at that time, like it's in the 70s and also into the 80s, American jazz artists, like, you know, when they travel to Europe, you know, they were treated like superstars. Yeah. Europeans love them. Yeah. And uh, so they were kind of much better treated than uh, back home in the States quite often. Sure. And uh, like a guy like Yubi Blake, mm. uh, you know, the ragtime guy, he came yeah. to our house and he was like 90 years old. And so it was the first time in his lifetime that he had visited a white family. Wow. Wow. What, um, as a kid, were you... Were you good at school? Was it easy for you? <laughs> I was very bad at school. I was uh, heavily dyslectic, mm. so I didn't learn to see my own name before I was 10 years old. I didn't learn how to read before I was around 10 years old. 
I couldn't even say dyslexia before I was 20 years old. You know, I was bullied because when you can't read or have a hard time writing and you can't pronounce your name, of course, it's easy to, to bully. So that was one thing. But another matter was that, you know, this strict discipline didn't really fit into my personality. Hmm. I just hated to go into class after having a break. So I was not a happy kid at uh, school. Hmm. But, you know, it's in one way, it was also an advantage. I don't want to be romantic about the hardship early in life. But, yeah. uh, but you know, it's also, also a good school that you early on learn how rough life can be, but sure. also how beautiful it can be and how, you know, how great possibilities that are ahead. Yeah. I mean, this was in the, uh, I guess, in the early 70s when you were diagnosed with dyslexia. Is that right? Yes. Yes. And this was still a time where it was not as widely, not as much was known about it. Um, did your parents, were they worried? Did they, because now, of course, some of the greatest <laughs> minds in the world we know are dyslexic, right? Some of the greatest industrialist leaders, um, uh, you know, writers, artists are, are dyslexic. But then we didn't know as much about it and, it and it was probably seen as as a real disability yeah and you know uh, <laughs> quite often considered to be dumb um my parents didn't think that way they understood you know it was something else wrong but at the time uh, my parents were quite busy my father as i said you know he was just critic he was busy working my mother was an editor in a publishing company she was busy working too so uh, me and my brothers were pretty much left to ourselves uh, right. to solve our own um, problems mm -hmm. so my family what we did together was that we did outdoors together we mm -hmm. went cross country skiing and sailing in the uh, in the summers that's uh, when i saw my parents how did you – I mean, you're, you're in Norway. Norway is a country of, of just outdoor activity. I've been there. It's an incredibly beautiful place where being in the outdoors is really just kind of intertwined with the, the culture of Norway. Um, so presumably all throughout your life as a child and a teenager, just being outdoors, hiking, walking, that was a thing that you, you would do with your family? Yeah, and for me, it was never an alternative. We, I was never asked and I was never forced to do outdoors, but kind of – Every Saturday, every Sunday, quite often on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the evenings, we did outdoors. And mm -hmm. um, today, I think about it as a great privilege that to early on learn how to appreciate nature, learn how to listen to nature, and also, you know, just by looking into a starry night in pitch dark, you see the stars and the gaze towards them. And at the same time, of course, you're also gazing inwards into yourself. Mm -hmm. So just by feeling this vastness, greatness, you learn about who you are, where you come from. Yeah. And you also learn about being humble because you're being aware of all these strange, powerful forces of nature and how tiny the bit you are of this earth, of this universe. But it also teaches you a lesson about your own greatness, because after all, you are part of it. And uh, that's a great feeling. Mm. You know, I was so struck when I visited Norway more than a decade ago about how this tiny country with a very small population has produced some of the greatest explorers in, in human history. And there are be beautiful museums to these explorers, Roel Amundsen and Friedhof Nansen, Thor Heyerdahl, who sailed on a raft Easter Island. And I wonder, as a kid, did you look at those names, Nansen, Amundsen, Heyerdahl, and others, 
and and think, I want to do that one day? Was that ever on your mind? Yes. I had my heroes like Thor Heyerdahl kind of drifting on a raft across the Pacific. I was very fascinated by that. But I also think it's kind of the culture of Norway that exploration is a huge thing. That's what Norwegians did. We sailed the oceans. We kind of went far away to explore the world. And I think it partly has to do with that we are kind of positioned way north, close to the North Pole. So if we're going to have any excitement, you know, we had to travel. We had to go venture into nature. So the spirit of exploration has to a great degree kind of defined uh, Norwegian history and the Norwegian um, self-esteem. Like, you know, in the US, if you're a great football player, basketball player, that's that's huge. But mm. in Norway, it's also like, you know, if you do well in exploration, you kind of become a kind of a hero. But having said that, I have to add that I think everybody's born an explorer. doesn't matter mm-hmm. where you're born, but you're born an explorer. If you look at your kids, as soon as they learn how to walk, they want to walk off to the house. And they start to wonder what's between themselves and the horizon. And uh, soon after, they would like to discover what's beyond the horizon. Mm. So I think, you know, this is the natural state of being. But then soon in life, when you start in kindergarten with friends, family, you kind of get corrupted. Your spirit gets corrupted. And also you go to school and you're taught to become a civilized citizen, you know, get education, whatever, get a job, pay your taxes, contribute to society. All these are great ideas, but, you know, you're kind of born with a 360 degrees horizon and then it narrows in very quickly. So um, I think it's a daily challenge to keep that spirit going. We need to tap into it. Yeah, exactly. And when I travel the world, I talk to thousands of people and my impression in general is that most people underestimate themselves you learn so much about your own limitations or told so much about your own limitations as a kid. I was too. And you start to believe it. Mm. Yeah. So I guess around the age of 19, maybe 20, but I think it was 19, you did your first really major sort of explore, exploration expedition, which was you, to sail across the Atlantic Ocean with some friends. First of all, it, it seems like such an incredibly scary thing to do at the age of 19, but also 1982, sort of before we had instant satellite communications. How did that come about? How did you decide at such a young age that you wanted to sail, sail in a boat, sailboat, across the Atlantic with just a a few friends? You know, that was one of my childhood dreams, was to sail around the world. And we talked about it, a friend of myself, uh, Havk Larsen, Havkval, uh, from we were nine or ten years old to sail around the world. And um, ten years later, we managed to charter a boat uh, with two other guys, and um, we got sailing. And, you know, t- thinking back on it, it was kind of crazy undertaking in the sense that uh, we didn't have much experience. Uh, we soon ran out of money. We almost sank uh, in the middle of the Atlantic. <laughs> Uh, the engine broke down, the toilet broke down, the uh, the cooking for making food broke down. So it was uh, a pretty dramatic uh, sailing. Hmm. But it's something with the slowness of kind of sailing across the oceans, just powered by the wind. 
which uh, I find really meaningful. Mm. Uh, because, you know, quite often we don't experience anything. We're just kind of thinking, we're seeing, we're documenting it by taking photos, but we're not really experiencing anything. And uh, I think it's very important to keep in mind that you need to make your life more difficult than it has to be. Mm. Especially as a Norwegian, of course, if I had been born in a different culture, if I'd been born in Central Africa, it would have been different. But uh, I think, you know, as a Norwegian, you need to make life more difficult and to make it meaningful. And uh, that has been one thing for me throughout my life so far. Um, if I have to choose between an easy option and more difficult option, I usually try to go for a difficult option. Mm. When you say that Norwegians should choose a more difficult life, what I think you're saying is that because life in Norway can be easy, right? It's a very privileged country. It's a wealthy country. You can live an easy, comfortable life, even even in the discomfort of winter, um, that actually you have to make a choice to to live a difficult life. Um, and I'm assuming that when you say that, what you're saying is a difficult life is a more meaningful life. That's very much my experience. I think from you kind of wake up in the morning, you're making all these choices throughout the day. And right away, it's easy just opt for the easiest option all the time. But to me, that is a mistake, both because life gets much richer if you sometimes take the most difficult option, but also because if you always take the easiest one, you're not living a free life. You're not making you know, your own decisions. It's kind of predestined what you're going to do. Mm. And that again is also a mistake. And you know, if you wake up in the morning, you really don't have to do anything that makes sense. You don't even have to get up from bed during the day if your mother is happy or father is happy to make you dinner. Mm. So, you know, I think both, you know, as an explorer, for sure, the most difficult part being an explorer is to get up in the morning. You know, it's always tempting to be in a sleeping bag and freeze a little bit uh, than getting out of the sleeping bag and uh, freeze like hell when it's mm. like minus 50 centigrade. So in 1990, Arlen Kaga and a friend became the first people to ski to the North Pole by themselves with no support team. It was the start of Arling's three-pole challenge. The three poles refer to the most extreme points on Earth, namely the North and South Poles and Mount Everest. So after reaching the North Pole in 1990, Arling Kaga hiked over 800 miles to reach the South Pole in 1992, and two years after that, he climbed Mount Everest, becoming the first person to complete the Three Poles Challenge on foot. I asked him, what on earth is it like to train for something like that? So you are obviously physically strong and mentally strong, but you're not the strongest person in the world, right? I mean, you, 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 you are... And even then, when you began to do this, those expeditions, you had to have physical strength, but it couldn't only have been about physical strength. How did you begin to prepare? For example, in 1990, when you, when you set out to reach the North Pole by dragging a sledge, doing this on foot, how did you begin to prepare for that? I think that's a very valid point, that the struggle lies between the ears and not in the feet. And uh, I was never physically the most fit. Uh, even my brothers are stronger than me. 
But of course, uh, walking to the North Pole, you have to train physically. So I trained for several years. So I was super fit and we were all both super fit when we started out to the North Pole. But then you need to design your sled. You need to kind of make the perfect food. So it's a, it's a huge undertaking. But I think, you know, it's in terms of mental strength, I, I think about myself in many ways as very ordinary. But I think I had one advantage, and that is that, as I said early on, that I had some rough experiences early in uh, life. And I don't believe in getting your revenge or you know going after people who have bullied you or giving you a hard time. I think the only way you can kind of get even with your surroundings is to try to succeed, try to follow your own dreams, trying to grasp for something beyond the horizon and reaching your goals. I think that's the only way you can get even and also feel satisfied, not for the rest of your life, because we're not born to be satisfied, but at least for a while. So when you did the first of those three expeditions, um, hiking and, and skiing to the North Pole, I think it took you about 58 days. Um, you're, you're essentially walking across a frozen polar cap, right? Sometimes for, for like 17 hour stretches. How did you, I mean, what's happening in your head, right, to enable you to do that? Because it's not just putting one foot in front of the other and, and dragging, I don't know, tens and tens of pounds or kilos of gear. It's, it's continuing to go when it's not only is it hard, but there are probably moments where you actually aren't sure you're going to survive, that you're, you're going to live. So how do you, what is it that you had to develop mentally to make that work and to do that? I think it kind of... I didn't. I wasn't aware at the time, but thinking back at it, I think you kind of hypnotize. You kind of self-hypnotize. You don't really care about anything but getting to the pole. You're not looking left or right or backwards. You're just heading north all the time, and it's minus fifty-four centigrade. It's uh, we're dragging 120 kilos each. You can fall into the water. You have polar bears. So it's extremely tough going. But, you know, we're always aware that to give up is even worse than keep on going. So in one way, you really don't have an alternative than to get up in the morning again and ski northwards. We didn't talk about anything but uh, progress and food because we're starving. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, justice has this one major goal, uh, makes you really strong. Quite often in life, you have too many small goals, but just have one major goal for a while. Uh, having worked so hard with the preparations for years, really, you know, made our willpower super strong. And sometimes, you know, you start to cry because you're freezing so much. Um, yeah. It's wide open water ahead of you and you kind of great doubt, you know, how I'm going to cross an open lead when it's 3,000 meters, you know, deep down in the ocean and it's minus 30, 40, 50 degrees. And I think then it's very important to be optimistic. You have to think somehow tomorrow is going to be better than yesterday. And I also think it's important to keep in mind that nothing is certain. I think that's a very good thing with the pandemic that it reminds us that nothing in life is certain. Everything can happen in life and certainly on an expedition. You need to differentiate between what is completely impossible or less and less probable. And 
as I said, as long as you're going, as long as you're moving, um, nothing is completely impossible. There's always reason for hope. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. What do you, um, I mean, you were such a young man when you did this. You were in your, um, I think you were in your, in your 20s and, and early 30s when you decided then to walk to the South Pole next after, after walking to the North Pole. And then two years later, 1994, you scaled Mount Everest. What, what, one of the things about the polar expeditions, I mean, I can't even imagine how mind-bogglingly challenging they are. First of all, um, there's incredible physical discomfort, not just from the walking and the movement, but, but also from the cold. And I think at times you experienced frostbite. When you think about it, why didn't you give up? Why didn't you stop walking? I mean, was there ever a moment where you thought, this is too painful, this this frostbite, this discomfort, the risk, it's I've got to stop. Did Was there ever a moment when you thought that? No. <laughs> uh, no, not because I think I'm tougher than anybody else. But it is, you know, when you give up, it gives a beautiful feeling for a short time. And then you start to regret it. So for me to give up, I find it super hard. On an expedition, I'm almost like an, a, just an animal. I'm just putting one foot in front of the other and uh, get going. So 
Once you finished that second polar expedition, was it already clear in your mind that you were going to scale Mount Everest? Actually, it was. Um, I think a general nature is not a place for competition. But uh, on this time, it, it certainly was. It was uh, 15 guys um, all together who had been to two out of those three places. And my impression was that all 15, who was among the greatest explorers in the world, uh, wanted to be the first to the North Pole, South Pole, Everest on foot. So I was in a hurry, for sure. And um, I climbed Everest, of course, because it's the highest mountain in the world. And I climbed Everest because I wanted to be the first to do these three places. And I think the best answer when people ask, why do you climb, is... Mallory's famous answer, uh, because it's, <laughs> it's there. there yeah. uh, I think it's a very good answer. And I think what Mallory tried to say is that, again, it's really nothing in life you have to do. Mm. Uh, you don't need to climb Everest. You don't need to get up in the morning. You don't need to get yourself an education. You hardly need to do anything in life. And you certainly don't need to go to the South Pole. But it's great doing it. It's, it's again, it gives life meaning. How did you integrate back into regular life after being on your own by yourself for 58 days or 60 days or, you know, 50 days, just by yourself in your own head in these extreme places? And then you return to Oslo and, you know, it's life continues. There's traffic. There's uh, people walking on the sidewalk, eating at cafes. And you've just returned from, you know, two or three months of, of being by yourself, in your head, on your own. Was it disconcerting? Was it challenging to all of a sudden readjust to normal life? Sometimes it certainly is, especially if, uh, coming home from Antarctica, having spent 50 days and nights without any radio contact, not seeing any human beings, not even saying a word. Uh, and then you have to go back to what we call civilization. To me, it was painful uh, to start with. Um, I had stomach pain. I was worried. I kind of had a good life. I think most people would have had a good life being 50 days by themselves. Uh, not the first couple of days because then you're restless, uncertain. But when you get into the rhythm and you're getting comfortable with yourself and you're moving all day and you're getting full from eating in the evening, life is great. But then when I got home, I found it difficult. But then soon, you know, somehow your washing machine breaks down and you need to get a plumber and you need to pay him and you get back to the Dale Rittman and that's beautiful. You've written a lot about things that, that you've learned from your exploration um, and practices that you've, you've picked up from it. So, for example, uh, waking up early, right? Like something that you learn to do that you, you just have to do. You just have to get out of bed or, or the sleeping bag, even if it's difficult because... The day is in front of you, right? So that's that's one thing. But um, another thing you read about is how much you've learned from failure. And I, I found that puzzling because you talk about how exploration helped you to accept failure. But it seems to me that in your explorations, you have succeeded. You you made it to the end. You arrived at a destination every time. I mean, you were the first person to, to complete the three poles challenge on foot. So where in there did you learn about failure? 
I learn about failure early in life. I learned about failure at school because I was a failure at school. I got I was the worst kid in terms of grades in school 12 years in a row. I was in sports. I was not very successful in football, etc. I was a total failure. I tried out different business projects. Some succeeded, others didn't. And also tried to do kind of, you know, longer and longer fiscal undertakings. And sometimes it worked out. Other times it was a failure. So I think failure is a natural part of living. And if you're taking some chances like I have been doing, you even have more failures. And I think, you know, the thing with failure is that, you know, either you learn from your failures or you get inspired from your failures. And if you don't, they're wasted. Erling, one of the things that you've, you've talked a lot about is the idea that humans are born explorers from the moment we can crawl. I've seen it with my own children. From the moment they can move and crawl, they're, they're all over the place. They're darting around the house and then eventually out the door. And we lose that at a certain point, right? Society and just the functions that we have to fulfill as members of society kind of hammer that out of us. I think it's similar and connected to the idea of curiosity, that curiosity is kind of hammered out of us, which is connected to, to being an explorer. How do you think that we can cultivate that, bring that back, revive that feeling that is inside of us naturally when we're adults? How do we become explorers again? That's a very good and also difficult question. I think, you know, if you're going to do it, you need to reconnect with yourself. I think a big mistake we're doing today is that we are too connected too often, too much of the day. I'm not anti-technology. But I think not today. It's too easy to live through other people. It's too easy to be disturbed. It's too easy to be entertained. But in my world, I think it's very much about sometimes not being connected, hopefully go into nature, um, experience uh, silence. I think silence is one of the most underrated virtues in the world today. Hmm. Uh, it's easy to think about silence as nothing, but silence is something. And silence has always, you know, been kind of painful t for people to experience. And that's why uh, the French philosopher uh, Blaise Pascal wrote in the 1640s that every problem a man has, has his origin, that he's not able to sit alone in a room doing nothing. Mm. And instead of doing nothing, he starts to do something. And that's the beginning of all his problems. Mm. This silence I'm talking about is inside you all the time, waiting for you to explore it. In 2016, Arlen Kaga published a book called Silence in the Age of Noise. In it, he wrote about the primal need for silence he believes all of us humans have. But of course, in the modern world, there really is no such thing as total silence. So I was curious how you would actually define that word. I think about silence not in the sense, as you said, that there's no sounds. I think about silence as the opposite to noise. Mm. To me, it's about shutting out the world for a few seconds or some hours. It's about not being uh, disturbed. It's about being present in your own life. It's about not being uh, connected. It's about listening to yourself. 
And I think it's important to keep in mind that your silence will always be different from my silence because silence is about who you are. And I also think it's important to be aware that to search for silence is not about living a more egocentric life. It's not about turning your back to society. To me, it's about the opposite. It's about seeing the world a bit more clearly. It's about getting to know yourself better. And it's about loving the earth even more. I think to just live in noise all the time will eventually make you feel that life is um, almost meaningless. Mm. What is it about silence that, because we live in a world that is the opposite of silent, right? In most most parts of the world, it's very challenging to find quiet and solitude. I, I think, by the way, the pandemic made that a little bit easier in some ways because cities, for example, really slowed down. And and many of us, um, we we have to leave our homes or our neighborhoods to find silence. You know, we'll we'll walk into the mountains or the hills in the hopes of finding a trail with very few people. But but it's hard, right? It's hard. In, in a modern world, in a modern industrialized world, finding silence is challenging. So how do we how do we do it? I I I partly disagree in the sense that. Um, I think you can find silence uh, anywhere. It seems a bit difficult, but you know, I think you can find inner silence, like you know, being present in your own life, not thinking about because when you think, you think about the past or the future, but just not thinking, but only experiencing the situation. When you wake up in the morning, when you're having a shower, feeling the water kind of coming over your head, if you walk to your office or walk to the metro, just being present in the moment, you can have some inner silence and you can have inner silence when you're walking the stairs instead of taking the lift. You can have the inner silence when you're doing the dishes after dinner and uh, when you're making low and when you go back to bed again. So I think, you know, Obviously, the silence is experienced walking alone to the South Pole in some way is greater, but it's quite similar to the one you can experience in your daily life. What, you know, on the flip side of that is the idea of adventure, right? Because, and, and actually, maybe not the flip side, because adventure, as you've shown, can, be, can also um, intersect with silence, right? But it seems to me that adventure and exploration are also, you know, in some form. It doesn't have to be a polar expedition. It doesn't have to be um, climbing Mount Everest. But, but adventure and exploration in some form, in your view, are also critical to unlocking creativity. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, uh, and I totally agree with you. You know, we have to find our own South Poles. I mean, it's meaningless if everybody should walk to the South Pole. Uh, so we have to find our own. It's just a simple thing as walking. The reason why Socrates kept on walking all the time and, uh, and then great thinkers from him to Steve Jobs, you know, they walked and walked was simply because it was good for creativity. University of Virginia and Stanford, they have done research on it and actually proven that just a 15 minutes walk will make you more creative for, you know, for a few hours. When I walked to the South Pole uh, for 50 days and nights uh, um, under midnight sun, 
When I started out, I felt that everything was white, everything was flat, all the way to the horizon. But as days and weeks passed by, I started to see it wasn't totally white. It was a bit bluish, yellowish, pinkish, greenish, appearing on the snow and the ice. And it wasn't totally flat either. Mm. It's kind of small structures. I learned to see the details around me and I also became quite good at having a dialogue with the environment, sending some ideas out, getting all the thoughts back again. And I start to wonder, is Antarctica changing? But of course it was not. It was me who was changing. And I start to feel like my body didn't stop by my fingertips, but kind of extended into the environment. And, you know, this changed my life uh, because... I learn about silence. I learn about uh, living uh, differently. I learn about how you can uh, change your mind and uh, look at the world in new ways. One of the things that you there's a story that you've told, um, and and it's connected to your work around silence, is a story where you had reached the North Pole with with your friend and. Um, colleague I, i'm gonna mispronounce his name borg osland and can you how's his name pronounced um i think you said it pretty good pretty good okay uh, right. in norwegian in norwegian it's a berge avsland but borg osland i think uh-huh. you said it pretty good yeah and the two of you after 58 days of walking and and pulling sledges across the north pole reach reach the top that reach the pole reach zero degrees and there's an American spy plane that is flying overhead. This is right around the end of the Cold War, um, and th- that wouldn't be uncommon to see an American spy plane. And they spotted you at the pole, and this plane circled back and dropped a parcel out of the plane, and it turns out that it was food. <laughs> and you and you you and Borg um, approach this this parcel, and you're you're ravenous, you're starving, you're so hungry. And, and so appreciative of food that you just rip it open and Borg tells you to stop. Yeah, that was a great lesson for me because we had, we were starving. We had not had enough to eat for two months and we're super thin and healthy thin. Uh, when I saw this abundance of food in front of me, uh, you know, my personality was just to dig in and eat quickly. Uh, but Berge said, Erling, please hesitate. Count one to ten silently while you're looking at the food, and then you start to eat slowly. And of course, you know, the experience became so much richer by counting to ten and eat slowly. And it obviously had a hugely profound effect on you. I mean, I'm sure you can still remember the taste of that meal. Yeah, it was uh, it was uh, uh, it was some sausage. It was corned beef just from the 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 can. The, the can. Yeah. And so it was like you know very simple food, but you know the great thing with having starved or being you know super hungry for a while is that all the food you eat tastes like the best food you ever had, and this again tasted even better because I had those. 10 or 12 or 15 silent seconds for contemplation before I started to eat. Hmm. How did you 
in the pandemic maintain your explorer's spirit? Many of us were confined to our our local areas. Um, you wrote a book, right? And so you were sitting at a desk a lot. And um, and you you I should mention you have a publishing company. So a lot of what you have to do is sit at a desk and read. I mean, how do you maintain this tension between the things you have to do, like sit down, like concentrate for hours at a time, days at a time, weeks at a time, but also move, move your body and get out? How do you, how do you balance that tension? I never find a perfect balance, or maybe for a few seconds or minutes at a time. But uh, I don't think it's possible to find you know, the perfect balance in life. It's a daily challenge to be able to do a good job with this book publishing business that I started 25 years ago and still be a family man and also to do my exploration. But during the pandemic, I was reminded about the fact that, you know, some of the greatest mysteries in the world, at least in your life, is in your own backyard. You don't need to travel that far to go exploring. And uh, I was thinking like, you know, when I grew up, I read all these books on great travels, uh, fiction and nonfiction. And, you know, in every second book, uh, the main character eventually returns from a long, long, long travel uh, to get home and find the answers to the questions he or she asked herself for himself. Mm. And that was the case for me too. I really enjoyed the pandemic. Of course, you know, it was dramatic and awful in many, many ways. But then day to day for me, I enjoyed it. I got mm. more time for myself. I got more time to read. I think it's super important to read. And I think it's important to read books you don't understand. That's too complicated for you. That kind of hurts to read and uh, to explore your mind, just like I think you should listen to music, which is too complicated for you. Just like I say, you should go into nature, get absolutely exhausted and wear down and maybe freeze and starve and get hungry to get to know yourself better. So, you know, I did this during the pandemic and also remind me that nobody knows anything for sure. Suddenly mm. we have a pandemic and tomorrow we have something else. So um, the future is uncertain, that's for sure. How has your experiences with silence made you a better leader? Because you are, I mean, you do have a, a, a company and, and you're an entrepreneur and you're an art collector and all these things that we haven't even explored in this conversation. Um, and you, you, you lead teams. How has your experience with silence helped you become better at, at leading others? I think the most important is um, silence is about getting to know yourself better. It's about uh, seeing everything around you uh, from a slightly different angle. And I think if you're going to try to be a good role model or if you're going to respect your colleagues and inspire them, I think it's a good start to know yourself. Of course, to know yourself, you will never know fully because that's a kind of a lifelong expedition and you kind of never reach your goal. But if you at least try to get to, to know yourself, if you try to be sometimes the center of your own life, not living through other people, living through devices, but think by yourself on your own, 
you got to try to get to know yourself better. I think that's the start for almost everything which is good in life. That's Arlene Kaga, publisher, author, and Arctic explorer. And for parents who are listening and yearning for a little silence after the turmoil of remote learning during the pandemic, Arlen Kaga insists it's possible. He says, I'm a father of three teenage daughters, but I can find silence at home. You don't need a course in relaxation to be able to pause. You just need to pause. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary and Built It Productions. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.